Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. today is going to be Dr. Roberta Temis, and we're talking today about coping with loss. Dr. Roberta Temis, a seasoned psychotherapist practicing in New Jersey, is the author of the book, Solace, Finding Your Way Through Grief and Learning to Live Again. Dr. Temis, who has counseled hundreds of bereaved clients, lost both her mother and her father. In her book, she explains how you can mourn more but suffer less. Welcome to the show, Roberta. Thank you. Good to be here. It's great to have you on the show, Roberta, um, and your book is such a great resource. You've got uh, so many ideas for people, and uh, I wanted to, to start out the show by asking you, uh, what's your take on grief? I mean, what is bereavement? Well, bereavement is a process. It's the period of adjustment after a death, and bereavement consists of two components, grief and mourning, and some people mix them up, but actually grief is your emotional response to the loss. It's what you experience kind of without your permission. When you break down crying, when you can't move, it's, it's an automatic response when you are really expressing your grief. Grief symptoms alert everyone to your situation. They tell everyone, treat this person gently. She's going through a hard time. Mourning, on the other hand, consists of the social things you do because you are bereaved. The actions that you take during mourning are pretty much determined by your religion or your social and cultural group to which you belong. Mourning actions are um, planned as opposed to the grief actions, which are usually spontaneous emotional outbursts. Both of them are bereavements. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, and I, I love the idea that you say, um, don't you, Heidi, that you say grief is a way of alerting other people because we sometimes think of it so negative, negatively. Oh, no. Um, it's, <laughs> it's nature's way of letting people know. I, I can recall the very first death I experienced was my mother-in-law, and I remember that the day after the funeral, my husband was in with his dad and the siblings, and they were mourning at their apartment, and I was back home with my little kids, and the mailman rang the bell. And he started talking to me as if it was a regular day. And I wanted to say to him, why are you talking to me like this? Can't you tell that something drastic just happened? I can barely speak. But I had no way to communicate that to him. And I wished at that time that I had a little, oh, a sign perhaps on me that said, I am in bereavement. I am mourning. And then I thought, well, why don't I just cry? And he'll say, what's the matter? And I'll tell him. Uh huh. Well, you know, that reminds me when Scott died, how do you remember uh, the whole um, 
a baseball team wore black bands on their arms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and what a neat thing for those kids to do that. I don't know who got the idea to do that, but to really say, you know, I, I, I sometimes think that uh, in Europe, I know um, when I was in Italy, the Italian women often wore black after their spouses died, sometimes, you know, forever, which <laughs> can be a lot. But I think the, the idea of letting people know some mm-hmm. way because I remember when Scott was killed, I drove home from Washington, D.C. He was killed in an accident down there. And uh, on the way home, I drove myself home, I can't even believe it, back to New York. And um, I just wanted to tell everybody every place I stopped, you know, and how, and I didn't, and how, how could life go on. Sometimes I see people that are sitting sadly, and I want to go up and say something to them, and I think, you know, like I want to say you look so sad, but I, I you know, you never know. So I don't know. I don't. Do you, do you? Would you say something to somebody like that if you saw them looking sad, Roberta? Well, yeah, you can't assume that it's because of yeah. bereavement, but sure. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's a it's a tough thing. Well, I want to talk to you about your overview of the grief process because you have uh, some stages of grief that I, I think are interesting. And I think they'll be interesting to our audience out there because so many of them are newly bereaved. Mm-hmm. And so, so they are going through these stages. And I, and I like the way you normalize a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Well, the whole business of bereavement is normal. It is normal to be crazy during bereavement. It is normal to have hallucinations, for example. It is normal to feel like your life is over. And, of course, it's also normal to recover and come back to the way you were functioning prior to the death. Wow. I wanted to uh, have uh, Roberta go through her, her stages of grief, but before we do that, I want to make sure that I get out there how to get this book. It's a lovely book. I love that picture of the window on the front. It's so beautiful, mm-hmm. finding your way through. And uh, how can people get a hold of your book, Roberta? My book is at every bookstore. It's at Amazon.com. It's at Barnes & Noble and Borders. It's called Solace, Finding Your Way Through Grief and Learning to Live Again. You can also get it through my website, drroberta.com, or my website, solaceafteradeath.com. All right, there you have it. So I would highly recommend that you pick this up. I mean, we can't even today begin to touch on all the great things that it has in the book. So uh, you want to talk a little bit about the stages because I know our audience is out there wondering, you know, am I normal? Is this right? You know, am I going through it right? You know, that kind of thing. Initially, of course, people are just numb. They can't believe this happened, and they can perhaps drive home from D.C. to New York as if life goes on because you are numb and you must do what you must do. But eventually, and then sometimes it's just a few weeks, and then other times it's many months, the numbness from the shock wears off, the haze is lifting, and you start to feel your feelings. And unfortunately, at the time that you start to feel those painful feelings, everyone who was so attentive to you is now back pursuing their regular lives and wondering how come you're not joining them. They think you should be fine already. Especially kids, I find that. Their friends, you know, uh, you know, you're no fun at the party. Mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. Because everyone, you know, has their life returning to normal after a week or two. You're just beginning to feel your loss, to feel your void, and it's terrible. But these terrible feelings are normal and appropriate and expected. In fact, this is the time when friends and neighbors and relatives 
become alarmed about you. They say, oh, she was taking it so well. Look at her now. Could she be having a breakdown? I love that. That is so true, isn't it, Heidi? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. This is the time when you have feelings of depression, and that's the least of it. You also can't sleep. Your throat is so tight you can barely eat. And then you start wondering if your mind is playing tricks on you because one day you miss him so much and the next day you're angry at him. Every single emotion will come into play. And then you have what we call hallucinations. You actually believe that you see or hear or smell the deceased. One man said to me, I can actually smell my wife's perfume. Mm-hmm. Another woman said, oh, I heard my my husband's car pull into the driveway the other night. Well, these are hallucinations. This is your mind's way of helping you to feel closer to the, to the dead person. This is your mind's way of helping you get through this time, and that's okay. I love the fact that you say that because when people tell me I keep seeing uh, them in the coffin or whatever, I'm like, it's okay. It's it's your mind letting you know that it happened. You're trying to absorb that. Mm-hmm. And it reminds right. me of people like losing limbs and saying they can still feel that phantom limb. Yes. It's still a part exactly of them in many right. ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you have the people who didn't have a good relationship with the deceased. They want to know. What's wrong with me? I feel so bereft. I feel so awful. I feel so terrible. And I didn't even like her. Yeah, and, you know, I think part of that is when it first happens, they're like, wow, okay, I'm through with them. <laughs> well, you're, I think you're also grieving the idea of maybe ending up working the relationship out. Now there's no chance of that ever happening. That's exactly right. So what they have lost is not only the relationship, but they lost the hope that they had of perhaps having a good relationship. They now have no hope. Right. And then what? And then getting into reorganization? Mm-hmm. Well, eventually they start to reorganize and people start to feel better. But it takes a while. That middle stage of grief with all the difficulties of sleep and eating and feeling sorry for yourself and all that stuff, it takes a long time finally there's occasional peacefulness. One morning you wake up and it's not the first thing you think about when you awaken. And you go to sleep at night and it's not the last thing you think about before you drift off to sleep. And then you know you're beginning to reorganize your emotions. Your feelings are a bit less intense and you've come to accept the loss and you're ready to enter life again. So that's that's the thing. What you're talking about right now is what Heidi and I have found that the hope that those people who are really newly bereaved or, you know, it, it takes a long time to deal with the death of a child and to get to the point where you're talking about. But the hope and belief that that actually can happen is an important aspect. Well, that's one of the advantages of certain organizations where you can see role models. You have tangible evidence in front of you that a parent can survive. Mm-hmm. And that life goes on and can renew itself. Now, what suggestions would you have for our folks out there who want to start moving towards that? 
can they do is it? Can you make a conscious effort or does it just happen or what are your thoughts on that? Well, it takes time. I think one of the nice things I like to suggest to people is they start to say yes. There are so many times in your life when you're bereaved that a nice, well-meaning neighbor or friend says, oh, let's have dinner or come with me to this event or that event. And you, in your mourning, rightfully say no. When you feel the slight bit of interest, start saying yes. You'll be surprised. People will come and drag you out. You'll be invited places. You'll have meals to share. And that will be the beginning. Just say yes. I like that. So just the the very simple thing of saying yes. And that's got something to do with accepting help too, doesn't it? Sure. Sure. When you feel totally hopeless, you're not going to say yes. And then there are other things you can do. It's a very good idea to go back to work. And if you don't have a job, get one or volunteer. Work Mm -hmm. is so therapeutic. It means that you have to show up at a specific time. It means you have to get dressed and groom yourself, even if you don't want to, even if you want to stay under the covers. And it means you have to say hello and smile. That's mm-hmm. a good thing. Yeah, and, you know, some of our guests that have, um, our listeners that have children say that their surviving children have been beneficial in many ways because it's forced them to get up, get dressed, get their kids to school in the morning. It gave them okay. a reason to, you know, get up in the morning. That's right. I also like people to organize. I think when your life seems so out of control, it's important to know that you can control something. Even if it's just cleaning out your desk drawer, find something that you can organize. Maybe it's photos. It helps you make sense of something, and it helps you deal with the chaos that's in your mind. Mm. And I like that idea of a small thing, you know, Mm -hmm. just just do (laughs) Yeah, I don't know, rearrange your money in your wallet or something. Uh-huh. You know, you know in, some place to start. In my book, Solace, on, I think it's chapter seven, I have, I list two unusual ways to help yourself, two new techniques. One is called tapping, and the other is called visualization. And they're both very interesting ways to help yourself. The tapping that I explain quite well on page 114 tells you certain parts of your body that are acupressure spots. If you tap them while you say a specific sentence, which I outline, it actually alleviates your feelings of anxiety. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, and I know we were looking at your website, um, and it says something about, you know, why aren't they used more uh, by the, the medical community, you know, the acupuncture points. And you want to comment on that a little bit? Well, we are a scientific nation, and that's a good thing. And no one knows why this works. There's no scientific evidence. We know it works. We've had clinical trials that say tapping on acupressure points works. But we don't know why, and so people are reluctant to use it because they can't explain it. That's number one. And number two, there's really no one who's going to benefit from this but you, the person who does it. Um, In other words, you, the clients, you, the mourner, will benefit from tapping. But the drug company is not going to benefit, so they're not going to advertise it. Yeah, I would really highly suggest that you get this book uh, and look at this chapter because, um, you know, how many points are there? Well, there are really many. I I list six of them here, but there are actually more. And um, 
So that you really need to get the book and be able to read it and, and practice doing where she suggests. And then, then you write a sentence, too, for it when you're tapping, right? Yes. Um, I can very briefly say, for example, if your sentence is, if what's bothering you most is, my best friend is gone, your sentence would be, even though my best friend is gone, I will be okay. Mm. And while you're saying that sentence, you tap on the particular point. It might be your collarbone. For many people, it's tapping with four fingers on your collarbone while saying the sentence preceded by the words, even though, and ending with, I'll be okay, or I accept myself. And upon doing that, it suddenly, dramatically releases your tension, and it actually separates the painful feeling from the sentence. So, and how long yeah. How long do you have to tap? Does it depend on the person, Roberta? Yeah, usually it's just a couple of times, and then you start feeling better. That's great. Fabulous. Well, you know, it's time for us to close our show now. Uh, uh, Roberta, do you have uh, something that you would like to say to people before we close? Yeah, that bereavement is a process, and it does end. And when it ends, you can enjoy life again. And one last thing I want to say, it's a good idea to keep a list of all the things you do that give you pleasure. On the rare days when you feel good, what did you do? Did you take a walk? Did you call your sister? Did you read the Bible? What did you do? Put it in a list. The next time you feel utterly miserable, go to your list and choose something. Great. Well, thank you, Roberta Temis, for all of your great advice. And have a good day, and thanks so much for being on the show. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com. 